0: Welcome back to the TV podcast on The Incomparable. Tonight, we are continuing our Farscape rewatch. This time, we're covering Season 1, Episode 3, Exodus from Genesis, and Season 1, Episode 4, Throne for a Loss. And uh, just a reminder, if you're new to this podcast, or if you just forgot from last time, we're doing the Wikipedia episode order for Season 1, not the Amazon Prime order. Amazon Prime is doing the Air Date uh, whereas wikipedia is the production date when the shows were produced and finished i'm your host eric scott and joining me tonight again is my fellow co-host who i don't think is a dna clone replica jason johnson
1: see this is the part where i was gonna just stay silent and pretend i was a silent replica but that really doesn't translate well to a podcast so uh thanks for having me it's good to be back yeah a podcast of just one person talking probably not really going to go very far No, and nobody can see me sitting here being quiet, so it's kind of pointless, right? Yeah, the audio doesn't do the video any justice.
0: All right, so tonight, like we said, we're going to do episodes three and four. So let's get into episode three, Exodus from Genesis. So we open with some scenes about life on board Moya. Rigel's painting a soft portrait, which really isn't very realistic, and also chewing and eating some of the food there, too. Uh, Crichton's arguing with Dargo about wanting to brush his teeth. Dargo stuffs uh, something called a small white creature called a dentic into John's mouth and says it eats bacteria and food debris. Uh, John's a little surprised at first and eventually kind of says it's got a nice little minty taste. But then Dargo warns him never to swallow it, which I guess could be kind of bad. Suddenly, Moya comes to an abrupt halt as it comes upon what looks like some kind of asteroid debris field. Going up to the bridge, Aaron spots a peacekeeper scout ship called a Marauder on the far side of the debris which is keeping Moya hidden from view. Uh, the Marauder stops scanning eventually and moves off, leaving our crew safe for now. Or are they? And then later we see part of the debris cloud that looks like small insects infiltrating Moya's landing bay. Later in a different uh, like maintenance bay, Erin's uh, working along with John. She tells John that they were lucky to avoid the Marauder, whose crew are called commandos. And we learn that Aaron was gonna be a commando, but before she could be reassigned, she met Crichton, And now here she is. Back in Rigel's quarters, Zan stops by to help him clean up from Moya's sudden stop. Uh, She uses Rigel's paint to enhance his painting by making what she calls a spirit painting of the Dominar. Rigel's pleased and says the painting reminds him of his his ancestor, Rigel I, whom he greatly admired. Back in the maintenance bay, Aaron's complaining that it's getting hot. Dargo contacts them to report the same thing. John checks a nearby control panel and confirms that the temperature is rising. Uh, As Aaron bends down to pick up a tool, she gets shot in the hand by some kind of needle-like dart that one of the invading bug-like creatures shoots from itself. She assumes it's just a metal splinter and pulls it out and throws it away. And as she and Crichton leave the maintenance bay, the creature retrieves its dart with her blood on it. Back on the command deck, uh, Aaron and Dargo discover that there's a blockage in the vents, preventing Moya's heat from discharging into space. And it's just gonna keep building up and being very bad for everybody. So the crew splits up to try to find a way to release the heat buildup. On one of the levels, Crichton and Zan work on closing some of the valves that control the heat. John tells Zan that uh, no matter what he does, Aaron and Dargo think he's pretty much useless. Zan says they're soldiers, and they should try to win their respect by actions, not words. Uh, having figured out how to use the vents controls, uh, John decides to go to their quarters to check on the vents there and close them. In John's quarters, we see another creature removing strands of his hair from one of his combs. John spots the creature and calls the others they want him to capture it for study and not to get back into the air vents john eventually manages to capture the creature in a bedsheet and kind of smacks it around a bit to knock it out but he kind of unfortunately winds up killing it taking it to zan she discovers some kind of Crichton's dna's in the creature cells the crew then discovers an internal dora moya is sealed with some kind of blue coated compound that no one can break through uh, aaron's getting more worked up and forgetful dargo says she has sebation heat delirium their species cannot deal with extreme thermal temperature increases. Aaron tells John that she will eventually lose her short-term and long-term memory, entering a state that they call the living death. And then she says that's the only time civilizations kill their own out of mercy. Later, uh, Creighton comes across Zan down another corridor, interfering with one of the heat regulator valves. He tries to stop her, but she uh, kind of beats the crap out of him, and then spews that same blue goo over the valve, locking it open, and runs away. John makes his way back up to the command deck and finds Aaron messing with the console. Pilot warns him to stop her from increasing the temperature further, and John tries to stop her, and you can pretty much guess that, yeah, she beats the crap out of him. Although while fighting, he manages to pull off one of Aaron's arms, and she falls to the ground just as the real Aaron shows up. Gathering the crew together, they discuss what to do about these duplicates of them and how to recognize them. They mark themselves with some paint as a way to know who's who. Uh, Later, Rigel discovers some kind of nest or hive behind one of the bulkheads and sees one of the creatures emerge from a cocoon. Xan comes up with a liquid that will dissolve the blue goo, but is attacked by one of the creatures and fires a dart into her neck. And uh, we learn that Aaron is slowly succumbing to the heat delirium and no one can raise Rigel. Uh, Later, John comes face to face with his own duplicate, and apparently the duplicate notices the dab of paint on Crichton's hands and seems to mimic the same thing and then attacks him John manages to beat his replica and then learns also that they can't speak apparently Rachel finally comes back online and contacts the others telling them that more duplicates are being created of the crew Xan arrives in command and speaks to the crew in a different voice she says that she's the monarch of the Drac and threatens to kill Moya's crew for interfering with the Drac's Genesis Crichton tries to play a diplomat and talks to the Monarch and learns that the drac live in space, but need heat to birth their young before they return back to space. Doing a little diplomacy, they come to a, a temporary arrangement that Moya's crew will remain in one room, locked up, and allow Genesis to be completed sooner. So, so those things can get back to normal and hopefully save Aaron from her heat delirium. So, while they're locked away, uh, that Marauder, peacekeeper commando group, returns and boards Moya. The commandos see what they think is the crew and starts killing them, but really, they're the duplicates, not the real crew. John persuades Monarch that the crew is not behind these attacks because they're all locked up in the room. Aaron can feel the living death approaching, and she asks John to promise to kill her before the end comes. Zan prods Rigel to try to speak to the Monarch in person. He goes down to the nest, and he's granted an audience, and goes inside the track nest, and after a tense moment where they can't contact him, uh, Monarch again speaks through Zan. She's talked to Rigel, and she trusts him. Uh, Crichton then tells her he's got an idea how they could defeat the commandos. He wants Monarch to raise the temperature even higher and allow Moy's crew to go free to deal with the commandos. While Zan tries to cool Aaron with a shower, John and Dargo go after the commandos who also are suffering the same heat delirium effects that Aaron is. On the command deck, several duplicates of Crichton surround the commando leader, who manages to attack the real Crichton and hold a knife to his throat. John convinces the soldier that if he kills him, then just another Crichton will take his place. He tells the commando to tell Krace what he saw here, and to let Krace know that he picked the wrong species to mess with. The commandos know they're beaten, and they're almost dead from the heat delirium, and they leave Moyo. Afterwards, uh, John tells Dargo he hopes Krace will leave him alone, but probably not. pilot reports that the temperature is back to normal, and the Drax leave Moya, and Monarch makes a final connection with Zan to thank the crew, and Rigel especially, for helping Genesis to be completed. Later, Crichton's helping Zan to her quarters, and she tells him that he did pretty well. And time and patience will help John adjust to his new life and his new companions. John leaves Zan to rest and winds up on Moya's viewing deck, where Aaron is. She's feeling better, and she tells him that she used to think lesser life forms were useless, and Crichton kind of realizes that she's actually talking about him. She asks him if he could have kept his promise to kill her before she entered the living death. But Crichton just turns away and doesn't really answer her. And they stand there quietly and watch the Drax swarm fly away. A couple little bits of trivia. Apparently until the Peacekeeper Wars miniseries that ended the, the series, this was the only episode directed by Brian Henson of the Henson Creature Shop that you know built all the space Muppets for the show. However, in this episode, they had a CGI version of Rigel where he was walking across the bay into the Drak nest. And that was pretty much the only time that they did that CGI as it was pretty much expensive and not really worth repeating on the show budget. Also speaking of show budgets, I guess that Terrace uh, set was also the only used in that episode because it caused a bunch of filming problems.
1: Yeah. I think the, the, the CGI comment's kind of funny. Cause the, you know, can you imagine having to defend that one to the the bean counters and be like, you know, Hey, look at this great scene we made. It's like, you know, Th- three seconds of him walking across and here's how much it costs that, that'd be a tough one so
0: yeah and also i guess for the time i guess with, this was like the late 90s uh, cgi wasn't i guess as good as it, it can be now so it, it kind of looked a little janky
1: so was kind of walking kind of weird like weird, waddling almost across the deck oh yeah i'm sure there's high schoolers now that could do that on their personal laptops but back then this was a pretty <laughs> expensive deal so
0: <laughs> yeah i'm sure it's probably pretty cool back in the you know late 90s but so, I guess plot wise, I mean, this is kind of your typical, I don't want to say typical, but like that, the, the trope of, you know, the crew encounters a race of aliens or something that takes over the ship. They think it's for, you know, evil reasons or bad reasons because, you know, bad things are happening, at least to Aaron anyway. But, yeah, really they're nice, or at least not as evil as everybody thinks. And everybody finds out, you know, they can work together in the end and everybody's happy.
1: Yeah, yeah it's, it's your one big misunderstanding, although I'll, I will point out that they, you know, shot them with darts at the beginning. So, you know, to get their DNA. So, you know, there's, there's some, some, uh, ethics questions there about the, the collecting DNA without permission and, you know, stabbing them to do it and, and all the fun stuff that goes with that. But, you know, it, like you said, it's, it's, it's all a misunderstanding in the end and everybody gets to go their own way happy. And it's, it's a good, you know, again reminder that not all aliens are humanoid and, you know, we shouldn't approach, especially, I think the show's trying to point out, we shouldn't approach everything, um, it's cookie-cutter Earth view, right? So,
0: Yeah, because kind of, as we learned earlier, like this side of the universe or galaxy or wherever John went to, they're kind of more, I guess, symbiotic with their, with their world. Like, you know, rather having a toothbrush to clean your teeth, for example, they have that little, you know, dentic little creature that runs around your mouth and, you know, cleans out your stuff, you know, your bacteria and food particles. So, yeah, you can't always judge a book by its cover, so to speak, you know, just because some alien looks like You know, a giant space cockroach doesn't mean they're not nice, right? At least in this universe, yeah. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Although, I guess, speaking of giant space cockroaches, I don't really get the Drax life cycle. It just kind of seems weird. Like, they're out in space, you know, however long they live, which we don't know. And apparently, in order to reproduce, they need heat, which I guess can't be like a sun, because that would burn them up, right? So really, the only way they can reproduce is
1: to get inside passing spaceships, right? Yeah, and you know, you also can't think very hard about how their actual replication works because they need DNA, but they're trying to make other bugs, not other replicants, you know, humanoid replicants. So, what happens to the humanoid replicants after they go out in space? How come they have clothes? <laughs> you know, the clothes aren't are part of your DNA. Last I checked. So, and the and the marks, the, the paint marks that they replicate later. So, there's a little bit of um, T2000 or you know, the liquid metal Terminator versus. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, DNA replication that they just kind of play loosey goosey with. And again, it's a it's a TV show. I get that, but it's kind of funny when you when you kind of approach it and go, "Well, how are the, how did you actually think this works?" You know, I'd love to have that conversation.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's it's more like they probably should have been like shapeshifters. That probably would have easier easier sell than the whole get their DNA and replicate. You know, but they can't speak obviously because they don't have the translator microbes. So or the knowledge either really. So they're just they just look good, but they don't do anything, right?
1: So. Yeah, and, and that kind of brings the question up. You were, you were mentioning the, the Drax life cycle. You know, is this the first time they've encountered um, intelligent life, or is you know, this colony at least? Because you know, they seem pretty clueless about how to interact with humans, or I say humans, with you know, the, the life forms aboard Moya. But um, you, know, you would think if they've been replicating Genesis for you know, their species history, that this wouldn't be the first time they've gone through this similar encounter.
0: Yeah, or if it, you know they this group of drac, I guess don't know, or if, obviously I could say they come from somewhere. Yeah, whether they have any kind of memory or if because the monarch wasn't there, maybe, or they didn't, because it seems like you know you should have the monarch hit one of the people with those darts that they, they hit with Zan with, and then she can speak with people and they can come to you know start communicating and have a dialogue, which actually worked. You know, once they could do that, they had a negotiation. Oh, a misunderstanding. Okay, you know, do your thing, just get it over with. You know, here hurt one of our crew rather than the whole. Let's make non-talking, almost like guards. I guess they're just kind of standing there, trying to help. I guess increase the heat so they can you know, get things done faster. But not really. I guess the drones, right?
1: They're not really doing anything. They don't have. They can't think for themselves. Or at least you don't, they don't seem to. Although they fight for themselves. So, I mean, unless she's controlling the whole thing. There's a lot of unanswered questions. But again, it, it, it's a good episode. It's just not a uh, one you want to tear into very much.
0: Yeah, and it really, the, the important bits isn't the plot of the story. It's more like. The crew interacting with the Drac, the crew interacting with themselves, you know, the Drac themselves, yeah, okay, it's a plot device, really. It's... Plot bugs. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> I guess, obviously, that's the more interesting part of the story is, you know, the crew interacting with themselves, right? So we have, you know, pretty much a lot of that. And during the opening, and then once the Drac show up, because, you know, we get John and Aaron, you know, learning more about each other. And yeah, at the end, you know, Aaron gets over her opinion
1: that humans are useless. And should be squashed, as, you know, as she put it, right? Yeah, and and you know, I think that's going to be a constant effort the show goes through is to show the growth and the the crew gelling, right? Because you know, as Crichton spends on quite a bit of time talking to Zan about, he's got to figure out how to earn the respect of these warriors that he's definitely not one of. Yeah, and even trying to figure out his environment because I think he said like it takes him like you know ten minutes
0: to figure out how to open a door because right? you know everything in the side of the universe is completely alien. You know, it's it's organic the t- talent is totally different he doesn't know how anything works he's you know at least he can understand people because of the, the microbes but other than that he's just kind of wandering around like
1: okay I don't know what the way this stuff does well and he should be grateful that he could breathe the same air they do so you know yeah well. a bonus there so all <laughs> yeah. well, right really short series of that and or inconvenient for him to have to be in a has you know environmental suit everywhere they go so
0: mm-hmm. I guess while we're talking about John and Aaron, um, kind of one of the funny lines when they're in the maintenance bay in the, at the beginning, talking about commandos and how you know they're this like super force. And Aaron's like, you know, I'm sure your your world has no force so ruthless and so disciplined as the commandos. And then John's like, yeah, we, we call them linebackers or serial killers, depends on whether they're professional or amateur.
1: <laughs> yeah, and I, I love that line because I was actually wondering which was which.
0: That's kind of the fun part about Fire is you know John keeps throwing out you know, like you know Earth references that of course nobody's going to get other than the audience right you know the crew will not have a a clue what he's talking about
1: yeah i mean i I didn't write them down but there was quite a few other ones as he you know references you know characters or movies or or anything like that almost almost similar actually to how um star lord riffs in some of the guardians of the galaxy movies later on you know for a more modern take on that same idea so
0: yeah and then they think he's kind of useless and silly about as much as you know the moya crew thinks john's useless and annoying right so
1: well, you know, if you take a human off of Earth and, you know, we're pretty much silly everywhere, you know, comparatively. So I think that's pretty fair. That's, that's probably yeah. accurate. So,
0: <laughs> And then we have other you know, other interactions. You know, we have Rigel and Zahn or Zan. I keep intermixing the two. I think they, you know, call her different. Whoever's calling her calls her different names. Uh, it looks like zan has got that super speed again. Like when she was doing the spirit painting, they, like, sped up the film we have her, you know, doing it. It's kind of another interesting power, I guess, that she has maybe.
1: Yeah, that's, that's, again, kind of slowly doling and teasing some of the character powers, you know. They, they flesh those out kind of as we go, but it's it's interesting to see each of the characters getting some time to, even if small bits, to show you what they actually do or, or their species does. You know, you get you also get the, uh, not the tangent off of them, but you get a, a little bit more on the air and, and the fact that, I don't know if she's specifically cold-blooded or just how they handle, they can't handle the heat, right, either way, uh, can't regulate so you're getting a little bits and pieces of the abilities and, and weaknesses and strengths of the characters as you go through. Yeah, like our
0: species doesn't have the temperature regulation, I don't know, gland or gene or whatever. Yeah, so that's interesting.
1: Yeah, and we get to see um, we get to see Rigel a little bit, even though it's mostly off-screen. Once again, proving that despite the fact that he's kind of a pain-in-the-neck pain character to most of the crew, when it comes to negotiations, he somehow becomes the the successful member of the party, right? He was the one that went in and became was the one that he was the one that got th- thanked at the end by the by the monarch. So you know, he obviously made a impression somehow. Yeah,
0: d- despite you know Crichton's attempts to be the peacekeeper and you know, so to speak, you know, the d- diplomat, which did work you know a little bit, but yeah, at the end, it's like you know when Rachel talks to the monarch, I guess being his former job as you know the ruler of his people that's probably what he's good at right you know talking making deals bsing you know schmooching people so he managed to get on her good side and yeah she's like you know i trust
1: him you know so whatever he said must have been great yeah i do think it's funny that that mostly happens off screen and on screen he's 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 not successful at any of that you know he was in a cell with that um other alien earlier and you know he just botched all of his negotiations and stuff but then you know, here again, he's he's having trouble getting in and, and is afraid to go in and deal with it. with that off screen, he's you know completely successful and gets thanked. So I think again, it's kind of funny, but it works. It makes the character successful after Zan talks him into it. You know, tries
0: to compare him back to you know Roger you know, what, what would Roger the first do? You know, so kind of like you know nudge him along, like you can do it. Which that's more of like what Zan Zan's becoming, like like the jack of all trades kind of character, right? She, she's like a doctor, a scientist like a a mystic priestess with, you know, the mystic healing abilities and pain sharing abilities. She's like the ship's counselor, you know, she's telling John, you know, it's okay. You'll figure it out. You know, time and patience, you know, don't worry about it. Try to get everybody's good side and you know, you'll do it.
1: Yeah. She's definitely got the, the, the plot device movement. You know, anytime they need something special pulled out, she can show an ability or counsel their way to it. So, and it's nice. It helps keep the, the crew compact, right? I mean, we're not on a, enterprise with thousands of people so you get to have your select crew and she's she's the jack of all trades as you referenced so i think that's a good title
0: yeah i mean there's only so many characters and obviously there's there's needs you have to fill per episode just in general there's no engineer because it's a living ship right so there's no need to have you know someone you know doing all the technical stuff because you know it's all organic right you don't have to worry about that right and uh i guess speaking of other creatures yeah organic we do get to see pilot more in his element like we get to see like his i don't even call it pilot's chamber wherever he he works or lives or is attached to and it was kind of a cool you know set it's like, you know, really large and like impressive looking and i guess that's like the, that's the full size of the pilot puppet like when aaron was there with him you know she's standing there and he's this big massive thing like right behind her right and that was pretty impressive
1: yeah i thought that was really cool because i may be wrong but i think that's the First time we get to see him with another character in the room with him. And so you get, like you say, you get a sense of scale, but you also get a sense of realness, right? Because for all we know, he could have been three inches tall and and buried somewhere inside of Moya's circuitry or something. We just, you know, we really didn't have a context for it. But in this scene, we actually get to see Aaron go in and, and sit and interact. So, you know, it makes it more of a real place and set piece, you know? So I thought that was really nice.
0: Yeah, because you kind of see, like he's, like, like, he's actually, like, he is plugged into Moya, literally. Like, you know, he's in this, like, central console, and he's got his however many arms. I couldn't, I didn't count them all, but he's got, you know, more than a couple little claws, arms, whatever. And, yeah, it was really impressive. So, obviously, we'll get to see more of that chamber, unlike what we said in the trivia, where that one, you know, ending observation dome, I guess, didn't work out for whatever reason. So, they, you know, never showed it again. So.
1: Yeah, They scrapped it, moved it to a different TV show, probably, you know. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah.
0: Once they learn, after they killed the first Drak by accident, I guess there wasn't a lot of killing. Obviously, of this isn't this is kind of like your Star Trek episode. But, you know, <clears throat> they're not running around shooting everybody like Battlestar go or killing people. You know, they're learning how to get along with everybody. You know, not they weren't really a threat after the beginning, so no yeah, point in despite, trying to. despite
1: despite having two warriors on the ship, you know, they they don't really seem to be you know fighting a whole lot. It's mostly um, like you said, the Star Trek methodology of thinking your way out of it, as opposed to the um commando methodology of killing everything except for the commandos right the commandos do come in and slaughter quite a few drag but
0: yeah I mean, that keeps them that the, keeps
1: him as the bad guy so
0: yeah so and that helps differentiate them from the rest of the crew right that's you know Crichton's selling points like look that's not us you know we don't want to you know we you know we, we, we know who you are now you know sorry about the first one we don't want to hurt you guys and yeah it managed to get dargo on board you know aaron i guess was probably be coming out of it because of the heat delirium, but yeah, to at least get Dargo,
1: not to like run
0: down the you know corridor, blasting people, you know. So
1: yeah, he probably would have went straight for the monarch if he'd had the chance before. Mm-hmm. So you know that was a good methodology to keep it moving.
0: Yeah. And even with the commandos themselves, like they don't kill them either. I guess John maybe is trying to bluff them or try to. You know, use the the duplicates of the of him from the creatures to his advantage. Of like, hey, you know, look, I can duplicate myself. So you know, to go back and tell your boss Kreis that you know, hey, you you mess with the wrong species here. You know, don't come after me, or I'll you know make a million duplicates and overwhelm you, right? But he's like, yeah, probably won't work.
1: But yeah, know, well, at least it was a, an attempt, right? Yeah, because I mean, you get you get um, since Kreis doesn't know anything about him. I mean, they don't even know what species he is. Might as well take the opportunity and confuse them a little bit and add some extra elements to throw them off. Of course,
0: then when they say, oh, I also saw like, you know, five Luxons and, you know, it was like, it's like, okay, well, whatever. But yeah, that's why
1: he probably thinks it won't work. But, you know. Uh, hey, heat, heat, heat delirium, right? I mean, they, yeah. they don't know. So, all right. You want to roll into uh, episode four? Yeah. Like we
0: said, this wasn't really a, I guess, in-depth media episode. So, yeah, let's, I think we
1: kind of said all we can probably say about this one. Yeah, I mean, like I said, I enjoyed it. it. It's the character beats we were there for, not the intensive plot scenario. That was just a, a, a platform to tell the story. Okay. Yep, yep. Just
0: learn more about the characters and see them grow and not hate each other as much as they did last
1: episode. Forward and onward. Yep. Uh, season 1, Episode 4, Thrown for a Loss, uh, begins with the crew uh, getting ready to meet with a band of Tavliks which Crichton keeps referring to as tabloids, uh, which I thought was a funny tabloid reference, maybe not, but that's where my brain went. They were about uh, getting paid to haul cargo for them. Aaron doesn't trust them and doesn't want to meet them unarmed. Uh, she's kind of gearing up as we kind of approach the meet. They wait for the Tavleks in Moya's main hangar, acting like Rigel is their leader. However, when the Tavleks arrive, they're armed with, with powerful gauntlet weapons and grab Rigel, making a fight break out. During the fight, Zahn's knocked out, uh, as well as another Tavlek, who, uh, when he becomes unconscious, causes his gauntlet to fall off. Dargo grabs the gauntlet, putting it on, but it doesn't seem to function for him. The tablets escape with Rigel in a bag, uh, setting up the plot for uh, moving forward. Pilot can't stop the escaping shuttle, so uh, Dargo, in a fit of rage, says to forget Rigel, it's his own fault he was taken, and orders Pilot to leave orbit. Dargo then throws a large barrel across the bay, shocking the others with his strength. Zahn notices the gauntlet is injecting something into Dargo, who continues to rage and declares that the ship needs a leader, him. The others try to grab Dargo, but it's easily, he easily throws them all across the bay. Crichton and Aaron follow Dargo as Zahn tries to revive the unconscious Tav'lek. Dargo has figured out the gauntlet and fires an energy blast at um, Aaron and Crichton. Aaron shoots back, but her shot is blocked by the gauntlet, which manifests extra abilities, you know, for shields and all that kind of stuff. The young Tav'lek says the gauntlet injects a stimulant, Increasing the wearer's strength, but that the Moya's crew are too weak to handle it. The only way it can be removed is when the wearer becomes unconscious. While Dargo threatens to rip off all of Pilot's arms if they don't leave orbit, a transmission is received from Bakesh, the tablet leader. He wants his teammate back, plus a hanger full of Purity 9 Corvinium in exchange for Rigel. They have one solar day or they will kill Rigel. The transmission ends. John and Aaron try to knock out Dargo with the sleep mist Zon made, but the gauntlet increases the stimulant and the, the mist doesn't affect him. They wisely retreat and John has another idea. He has Pilot close Moya's coolant vents, raising pressure within the ship. When Dargo tracks down John and Aaron, Pirate leases the pressure, causing Moya to shake violently. This causes Dargo to fall and knock himself out. The gauntlet comes off and is picked up by Crichton and Aaron. The young Tevlek tries to escape, but Zahn overpowers him and locks him in a cell. Meanwhile, down the planet, Rigel is also in a cell, trapped up to his waist in dried mud, while in an adjacent cell, another creature, Jotheb, next in line of succession to the Consortium of Trout, is also a prisoner. Moya's orbit is decaying because the control crystal is missing. It turns out that Rigel stole it to be part of his scepter to appear more important to the Tavlax. Dargo is still sleeping off the stimulant from the gauntlet, so Eren tells John to come with her and her prowler down to the planet. John refuses to go, so she punches him, knocking him out, and takes her with him anyway. Down on the planet, John and Aaron locate a Tavlec hunting party, and Aaron needs the gauntlet to overpower them. John says she's nuts to to do it, to use it after what it did to Dargo, but she says he can sedate her when she gets back and removes the gauntlet, and remove the gauntlet then. Aaron quickly deals with the hunting party, but while she's questioning one of them, the others wake up. John tries to use Aaron's pulse rifle to help out, but he accidentally overloads it, causing it to explode. The Tablaks then flee. Back on Boya, Zahn's tablet prisoner is suffering withdrawal symptoms from the gauntlet stimulant. He attacks her, drawing blood, but she easily overpowers him. She mixes a few drops of her blood into a potion and gives it to him, which seems to relieve his withdrawal symptoms. Aaron refuses to have John use a sedative to remove the gauntlet. When John tries to inject her, she throws him aside easily. However, Dargo finds them and challenges her to hand-to-hand combat. When Aaron tackles Dargo, Dargo uses his tongue and knocks her unconscious. With Jothb's help, Rigel gets free of the mud, but he is caught and choked to death by Bakesh. Jothab revives Rigel, telling Bakesh that his people will pay Rigel's ransom. After Bakesh leaves, Jetha welcomes Rigel to the Consortium of Trial, saying that all of Rigel's subjects are now part of the Consortium, but Rigel begins laughing. He tells Jothab that although he is a dominar, he was deposed and imprisoned. It is now worth nothing. John and Dargo locate Rigel's cell, but he's gone, Jotheb tells them Rigel is being moved to a secure location by a shuttle. As they leave, Tavleks find them and attack. Aaron opens fire, making the Tavleks run for cover. As John and Dargo escape, Dargo is shot in the back by a Tavlek. They make it back to where Aaron is waiting and Dargo collapses. Dargo asks them what color the blood is and it's dark red. Aaron then suddenly starts pounding Dargo's on the back with her fists. She explains that Dargo's wound isn't cleansed until the blood runs clear. Onboard Moya, Pilot tells Zahn that Crichton needs her help to scan for the Tevlek shuttle. She lets the Tevlek boy find his own way back to his cell, but he tries to escape instead. Zahn tells Crichton where the shuttle is and then goes to search for the Tevlek. John doesn't have enough time to get to the shuttle unless he uses the gauntlet. Reluctantly, he puts it on, and when it takes effects, he runs off into the jungle. Zahn finds the Tevlek boy, preparing a stimulant injection, and stops him. He attacks her, and she overpowers him again. And Angley says that she could tear him apart, but she doesn't want to, as he isn't her enemy. The stimulant he's trying to recover from is. John reaches the shuttle and takes out all the tablets except for Bakesh. He and Bakesh exchange fire, but John starts to feel weak. The stimulant has run out in the gauntlet. John says Rigel isn't a dominar, he's an escaped mental patient. Bakesh says Rigel isn't insane. Fine, Rigel's contagious. Ever hear chickenpox? Nope, Bakesh is not buying that either. Finally, Crichton just comes out and says that Rigel is worthless. He's an obnoxious gas bag, and who's going to pay for that? The crew have nothing to offer. Rigel lied to the Tavalex to impress them, and Crichton swears that's the truth. Vikesh says it's been so long since anyone told him the truth that he doesn't recognize it anymore, and releases Rigel. Crichton demands to know where Moya's control crystal is, and Rigel says it's safe and sound, and then sheepishly admits that he swallowed it. Back on board Moya, Aaron and Dargo wait patiently for Rigel to poop out the crystal. He gives the crystal to Aaron, promising that he washed it. Maybe. Zahn receives a transmission from the tablet boy and is disappointed to find out that he is wearing the gauntlet again. My choice, he says. Uh, the interesting trivia for this episode was that um, Jethob was operated by putting a false floor in the cell next to Rigel and the puppeteer was up to his waist inside of the rig. Crichton makes uh, two mistakes with his pop culture references. Uh, the first is the movie where John Wayne played Genghis Khan is actually called The Conqueror, not Genghis Khan and another where the title of the character in Kung Fu is called Kung Fu rather than Kane. Uh, and finally, uh, this episode features one of the first nicknames that Crichton gives to Rigel, Fluffy. According to Ben Browder, it was unscripted and was based on Rigel's eyebrows. So what'd you think of this episode, Eric? So kind of in the, in the, a little bit in the last episode,
0: but more this episode is kind of what I remember most about Farscape. It's like, you know, the, the, it's like action... I like action comedy. So I, I love the witty dialogue, like the, the, the banter back and forth you know, between the different crew members, you know, the different like jokes, like how they react to things. But yeah, kind of like when I, I don't remember too much about Farscape, having watched it, you know, now like what, 20 years ago, right? But that's kind of the one thing that kind of stands out is like this is kind of like, the, like the, the template for what I remember the
1: whole season, the series being like. Yeah, and it's kind of interesting how as we go, you know, now that they've actually got some relationships built and stuff, they can start playing with that a lot more, right? There's, there's a little bit of history between the characters, which there wasn't before, so they can kind of make references. You start getting nicknames, uh, endearing nicknames, not just, you know, insulting nicknames. Um, you, you start getting more references and trying to educate each other and, you know, more understanding, right? I mean, you know, if you go back to the first episode, would Aaron have tried to beat the blood clear or would she just kind of have walked away if dargo needed help you know so we're starting to get a little camaraderie and uh, assistance with each other going which i think leads to like you say a lot more of the the snappy dialogue and template to flow
0: yeah because you know, now they're yeah, you know, like you said they're becoming more like a crew they're caring more about each other last episode dargo and aaron kind of didn't really like each other still like dargo's like yeah she's gonna die whatever that's great who cares and this time around she's helping him by trying to get his his wound cleansed and then later when they're both kind of exhausted from the withdrawals from the gauntlet you know they're kind of laying there in the grass while Crichton runs away one of the pieces of dialogue was like who would have thought there'd be a race more clumsy and pathetic than Lu- the luxons you know we could talk about you know john and then like dargo kind of like drops Aaron to the ground he's like oh i'm sorry you know how clumsy we luxons can be
1: <laughs> right yeah yeah that, that's a twofer right because not only does she get to insult humans and john specifically that he also gets a, a a dig in at dargo who gets his uh revenge immediately after so it's kind of a nice back and forth
0: yeah it's, it's more playful this time than like mean-spirited right it's, it's oh, yeah. kind of like now it's becoming like what i remember the show being like you know the, the crew's tight together they have like you know experience like you know past experiences they're playful you know snapping one another you know not really insulting but just kind of like wisecracking with each other
1: yeah, I mean, obviously, in these type of shows, it's kind of hard to judge how much time passes between episodes. You know, we don't know how long they've been together specifically, but there's definitely growth as they develop history, so it's kind of cool. And this is the episode I think I was I was mixing it up a little bit earlier, um, where I remembered a lot more of Rigel getting his negotiations in right because he he you know completely snows the uh, cell uh, his next door cellmate there until um, he ends up saving him before he gets to laugh at him for the fact that he's completely worthless. So helping him does not get him the uh, subjects that they wanted.
0: Yeah, because even uh, Raju manages to yeah bluff uh, Bekesh. You know, obviously, he thought he was worth something. That's why they stole him, right? And then, you know, I guess Rajal is so annoyed Bekesh anyway that Bekesh just didn't care about getting the you know, the, the reward or the, the ransom. Yeah, he, he winds up killing him anyway. And then, yeah, when Jothab brings him back to life, he's like, okay, well, now you're, you know, I brought you back to life. Now all your wealth and riches and people are now part of my, you know, my... Consortium. Consortium, yeah. And he's like,
1: eh, uh, not necessarily. <laughs> yeah. Good luck with that, right? Yeah. <laughs>
0: yeah. And even after that, I guess Jothab still, I guess, likes Rig- Rigel in some respects, because when John and Dargo show up, you know, he's not like, uh yeah, he went somewhere around care. I don't know. So, you know, he at least tells them truthfully what happened and where he went right so he must well not exactly hate him right
1: right he must he probably earned a little bit of respect there because you know while while Jotham was out of his what he thought his reward was going to be he uh probably has respect for somebody who was able to pull one over on him so that was my read anyway mm-hmm. yeah because you know
0: his people were, were going to pay his ransom so he had no real i guess skin in the game so to speak you know he didn't really care i guess what happened to rigel but i guess they formed some kind of friendship or Bond, I guess, is you know captured rulers, even an ex-ruler, still a ruler, right?
1: Yardstick, I don't know, something like that.
0: Yeah, right. And yeah, I mean they do a good job like not showing too much of Jothub, right? I guess you know you can't have these complicated puppets like Pilot and Rigel in every episode for alien races, right? So where they did with the budget, they kind of kept him pretty much secluded behind you know the partition between the cells and had like different effects where they kind of hide him from it. So yeah.
1: Although, you know, and I I think that's part of what I'm enjoying about watching the shows. I, I miss some of the practical effects. Are they less realistic than our super CGI ones? Probably. But it's kind of cool to go back and watch some of the old school practical effects of letting your imagination do some of the work.
0: Yeah, that's before, you know, everything became CGI. And like nowadays, like I heard the uh, Disney Plus Marvel series episodes cost like 15 to 20 million dollars, right? That would probably be like the entire season of Farscape in 1999, right? So
1: Right. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, just look at the—I forget what they call the facility, but they—they they, they use the 360 screens that they use to to record all those shows. And you know, this show is just all traditional, so it's kind of cool.
0: Yep. And you know, with the puppet experience of the Henson Puppet Shop, right? They can make good stuff relatively quickly, right? So it's just a matter of doing it on budget and with what you got to do to make it not look like you know, here's the strings with the puppet, right? So.
1: Well, and and not across the franchises, but you know, uh, you know. Even today, you know, if you ask most fans, what would they want? Do they want the traditional Yoda Muppet? Or do they want the um, CGI Yoda from the prequels, if those actually existed? Then I think most of us would say we preferred the Muppet, right? So it's part of it's just the endearing history of it, but part of it's, you know, the feel.
0: And you know, Rigel's becoming, you know, your... Your little schmoozy, you know. He he's like what we said before, like you know the the, the diplomat, the face, the the fast talker, you know. Even when when John's trying to bluff cash, he's like, you know, oh yeah, no, he's he's crazy. He's like, yes, yes, I am. I'm you know, <laughs> and then he keeps kicking him, and you know, no, he's sick. He's you know, he's yes, yes, I'm unloved. I'm unwanted. Uh, kick, uh unconscious. You know? <laughs> <laughs> right. And then yeah, with him and Rachel at the end, it's like you know, where's the crystal? I knew that's why you but only come back for me. You didn't care about me. All you want's is the crystal. It's like, where is it? You know, you swallowed it, didn't you? <laughs> that's, mm-hmm. you know, yes. That's the only way you'd come back for me.
1: <laughs> well, and that's, that's totally in character, right? What would he do to protect himself? Well, you know, you're either going to gut me or you're going to take me back. And he, you know, was pretty sure he'd get taken back. So,
0: yeah, I mean, he's like you know the smallest of them all, right? So he's you know got to do whatever he can do to keep his worth and keep keep them wanting him around, right? If they don't think he they like him, if he's if he's just, just there, you know, being annoying and getting everybody into trouble, and then he's gonna have some leverage, right? I guess going back to one of the main themes, I guess, of this episode, if you want to call it a the theme, I guess is um, I guess th- this gauntlet that they're all using, which is a kind of a, like like an narcotic more or less, right? You know, it makes the user want it more and more. Yeah. You get withdrawal symptoms, cravings, you know, you tend to kind of do whatever you got to do to get the gauntlet again. And that kind of of plays out between Zan, the tablet kid, and even the rest of the crew, right? As they go through their kind of experiences with like, you know, Dargo, you know, becomes more aggressive. You know, he's like, you guys are all idiots. You know, I'm the, I'm the leader, no more committee. Aaron's basically yeah. like the, the, the super soldier. She's just out there like, you know, this is great. I can, you know, take them all out. And and then John's like, oh, this is fantastic. I love it. This is great. You
1: know. <laughs> Which is an interesting approach, right? Because, and this was, we do these plots even to this day, but this feels, this felt really 90s to me, I guess, when we were doing all the, it seemed like every show had to have an addiction episode of some kind. <laughs> right. Um, but, at the same time, this was a, an interesting take on it because most of those shows don't make it a point to pass that narcotic around to all of your main characters. I, I realize there was a couple that were excluded, but you know, three of the main characters each passed it around at different times. And while they each suffered a, a side effect, it, it did help them in that situation and was presented as the, the solution. And then, of course, you know, at the end of the episode, we find out that the child... Did to choose to go back to it, which was I thought was another interesting thing that you don't usually see in addiction episodes. Right, they like to to end on a happy note or at least a, a resolution note, and the resolution in this case was a relapse.
0: Yeah, because even though as we learn, you know, more of Zan, Zan's many, you know, check of all trades is, you know, she's also like probably a molecular chemist, right? Like she managed to synthesize between her blood and this potion a way to like get rid of the withdrawal symptoms, which I guess maybe it's only temporary, right? Because, you know, he went right back to it or he, he, later he tried to escape and inject himself with it versus the crew, I guess what, I guess he's going to help them later, right? Probably off camera get with, yeah, know, to handle their
1: withdrawal symptoms, and, right? I'm guessing. And we hope that their short-term use won't be nearly as, as troublesome as his long-term use. I mean, I guess, yeah, their, their culture is presented as though they put it on as a child, you know, early youth. They're constantly using it. So it's it's a long-term addiction versus the, the mm-hmm. short-term use, which, I, I you know, I, it's still bad, but at least you hope that it's easier, to, more easily to recover from, I think is what they'll leave it forward. I'd be surprised if they mention it again. But
0: Yeah, I mean, there's probably not, I know this was kind of the beginnings of the serialized, you know, television stories, like, you know, DS9, you know, kind of did a lot of that in the sci-fi genre about the same time. So, but yeah, they're probably not going to really mention it much after this. Plus it kind of seemed like, yeah, to your point, They only used it for like, what, 20, 30 minutes a piece. So maybe it's not that big a deal. You know, it just seemed like, you know, Dargo was really tired. It wasn't like he was wanting to grab the gauntlet again afterwards. Right. So.
1: No, I think they each had their fill of it. So.
0: (laughs) Yeah. So this was their, you know, anti-drug episode. Right. You know, just, just say no to gauntlets. Right. So.
1: Yeah. I mean, like I said, very nineties feeling, but you know, it kind of. They, they did a good job with it. They did made some interesting choices that you didn't see in a lot of these shows. So, And we, we do
0: get a little more, you know, along with the whole drug scene, like I said, with, with Zan and, and the kid, that we keep seeing more and more of, of Zan. Like, she keeps being more like the surprising character, I guess, of all of them, right? John's kind of, not not one. I don't say they're all one note, but they have their basic kind of things. Like, you know, Aaron and Dargo are the warriors. They have that mentality of, like, shoot first, ask questions later. You know, they're, they're kind of evolving a little bit. But Zan continues to be, like, this kind of, like, every character, right? She's, you know, she's, you know, like I said before, like, you know, the chemist, the doctor, the counselor. Here, apparently, you know, as this kid keeps trying to attack her or try to escape, she just keeps, like, basically, like, you know, throwing him to the ground, you know, you know locking him up. You know, she appears she just keeps overpowering him at will, like he's, he's like he's nothing, right? Even to the point, I guess, the last time he tried to escape actually tried to hit like an attacker, you know, she basically shows up against the console. And it's like, you know, gets like really mean and mad. Like, you know, I could like rip your arms off,
1: but I'm not going to, because you're not the enemy. Right. Yeah. And it's, it's an interesting point because she's, she's also the character I feel we know the least about. Right. I mean, in each of their, their, if you want to classify them, right. You've got the scientist in Crichton, you've got the, the military warrior in Aaron, you've got the war warrior culture in Diago, but you've got, uh, and, uh, Rigel is a, a rich ru- ex-ruler, but for Zahn, you get anarchist. Well, what does that mean? You know, and priest, you know, so you got a contradiction. You got an anarchist priest that you don't understand what that mean, means or how it works in her culture. So it's, it's mysterious that they can kind of do whatever they want with it at, at any point.
0: Yeah, I mean, it kind of makes you wonder, or at least makes me think maybe, was she an anarchist before she became a priest? Because was she more like violent and ruthless? And then for whatever happened, then she became more like this peaceful, contemplative, when she's telling Crichton before, you know, you just need time and patience. You know, time and patience will solve everything. That's, that's the answer to everything. So is this, I'm, I'm curious to see how they flesh out this, her past more. Like, is it, she's a priest, but suppressing her violent side, or she was violent and then became a priest?
1: Or, or do they? Is she just a mystery through the whole show? I guess we'll find out.
0: <laughs> yeah. Who knows? Yeah. That's the fun. We're only
1: episode four, right? We got, that's right. Dozens of more episodes to go. So. Yep. And uh, speaking of that, coming up next, I guess, is uh, episode five, Back and Back and Back to the Future, and six, Thank God It's Friday Again.
0: Yeah, which the way these two episodes, at least title-wise, it, it kind of seems like both of them might be like the same, either like time-travel-y or flashbacky kind of stories. So I'm kind of curious, since they filmed them, obviously this is the order, again, the production order, so they filmed them in this order. I'm kind of curious if it's like the same, I'm sure it can't be the same script
1: or same idea, right? Of Like time travel or flashbacks or something, right? But Yeah. Today, just going off the title today, you would consider that a two-parter, right? Because it sounds like, you know, one would be the setup and one would be the resolution again. But given that this was late 90s, early 2000, probably not, right? It's it's probably separated. Just so you're right. That's an interesting pairing. Yeah, which I guess we'll find out next time, right? We don't know because I never saw season one
0: and you can't remember it so who knows we could oh, be both right <laughs> i've not seen any of them so this is all new to me <laughs> all right so yeah that's your homework next time uh according to wikipedia season one episode five and six so until then we'll see you next time